Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We were in the throes of excitement in our last lesson as we learned how a sorcerer came to Christ. It's a good historical story that ends up having a lot of drama. The account is found in Acts chapter 8 and happened after a revival broke out in Samaria through the ministry of Philip, who was one of the first seven deacons. So many people had been saved through the revival that Philip needed some help overseeing what the Lord was doing and to help take it further. At this time, the apostles were based out of Jerusalem, even though the martyrdom of Stephen caused many believers to flee the city. After hearing the news of revival in Samaria, the apostles sent Peter and John to help Philip. They brought to the revival the gift of baptizing people in the Holy Spirit, and this took the outpouring of the Spirit to a higher level, which in turn brought greater excitement to the people. We finished our last lesson with verse 17 that reads, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This leads into verses 18 and 19 that brings back into the narrative Simon, who was a former sorcerer. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given after the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The first point I want to make from this is that something very obvious was happening that amazed Simon to such a degree that he wanted to buy this gift from Peter and John. Up to this point, Simon had seen demoniacs set free and all kinds of physical healings take place through Philip's ministry. He was seriously impressed by this and followed Philip everywhere, but he didn't offer to buy any of these gifts from Philip. That's an important point. Simon also saw Holy Spirit revival that produces an overwhelming conviction of sin and the radical conversion of those who repent and surrender to Jesus. The former sorcerer didn't offer to buy this gift either. After Peter and John showed up to help Philip, Simon saw people baptized in the Holy Spirit, and this impressed him to such an extent that he wanted to buy the gift. What did Simon see that so amazed him more than physical healings and deliverances? We aren't directly told, but we know that it has to do with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Solving this mystery is simple if we use what the book of Acts teaches and some simple logic. In verse 17, we are plainly told that Peter and John were laying hands on believers and that they were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. What was the manifestation that proved people were being baptized in the Spirit and happened every time the apostles prayed for people? The biblical precedent began on the day of Pentecost when 120 disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is the defining evidence that people were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't take a Ph.D. in rocket science to understand what the initial evidence was when people were baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is speaking in an unknown tongue. Though it doesn't directly say that people spoke in tongues in this portion of Scripture, it's the reasonable and logical conclusion given what happened prior to this event all the way back to the day of Pentecost. When Peter and John laid their hands on believers, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the external evidence wasn't divine healing, casting out devils, or even prophesying, but speaking in other tongues. This wasn't the prophetic gift of tongues as we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, but the personal gift that's a prayer language where a person's spirit rises up in Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. 
What I'm saying is keeping within the context of what's taking place through the infant church as we have been studying in the book of Acts. Simon offered to buy from the apostles a spiritual gift that was obvious and happened every time they laid their hands on people and prayed over them. This wasn't a random event, but was consistent. When people were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they gave evidence they received the gift by speaking in tongues, which is a heavenly language. Like I said earlier, Simon had already seen Philip performing miracles of healing and deliverance and was used in revival. What the apostles brought was something totally different, as this account teaches. I hold to the classic Pentecostal teaching that the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in other tongues, because the evidence for this is simple, consistent, and more than enough. Moving on, let's look a little bit more closely at Simon. Before we vilify the man for wanting to buy the gift to see people baptized in the Holy Spirit, we need to remember that he was a newborn babe in Christ who came out of a very demonic lifestyle. It's not merely that he came out of a demonic lifestyle, but as we studied last week, he was a leader in the realm of sorcery and was considered a person of great power. He probably made his living off of sorcery, and buying mystery knowledge in relation to this demonic craft would have been typical. Simon was only doing here what he had done in the past. This doesn't diminish the fact that what he did in his former life was evil, and what he did in this account was also evil, for it was filled with the evils of pride, selfishness, and greed. Now we mustn't forget that Peter was rebuked by Jesus for letting Satan speak through him, so we can't say that what Simon was doing was any worse than what Peter did. Then we have the account with James and John, who were filled with so much pride that they wanted to be the second and third most powerful men in Christ's kingdom, only surpassed by Christ himself. As we look at Peter's strong rebuke of Simon, it's important that we understand that the apostle was wanting Simon to completely sever everything with the demonic realm. This was serious, and it demanded that Peter deal with it in a very strong way, or Simon's newfound faith would have been corrupted, and he would have corrupted other people as well. Simon needed to completely sever his association with his former life of sorcery so that the church wouldn't be slandered or discredited as being immersed in demonic practices that are strictly forbidden by the Mosaic law. The tremendous benefits of a good and pure reputation can't be overstated here. This was extremely important for the survival of the primitive church. If the world slands the true church, that doesn't really hurt the church because the Holy Spirit is still anointing her and drawing people into the fold. But when the church disgraces herself before a watching world, then the Lord is grieved due to her sin and the Holy Spirit is withheld from the church. This is still the case today. Tragically, the church has been disgraced through all kinds of scandals that seem like they are a constant flood from hell, sweeping through the church and stripping her of Holy Spirit power and authority. Whenever the church lowers her moral and spiritual standard for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then her voice is lost and the world ignores her as irrelevant. People water down the gospel in the name of love so that people aren't offended. But it's never love to allow people to remain in the practice of sin, which will damn them to hell. Soft preaching is always destructive to the true church and causes the church at large to be delegated into the realm of meaninglessness and worthlessness. 
True Pentecostal power produces Pentecostal holiness that restores apostolic power and authority like we see in the book of Acts. This is what we need right now in this country. In verses 20 and 21, Peter answered Simon saying, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Let's break this down now. What does it mean by the statement, may your money perish with you? Peter is presenting some of our Savior's thoughts on money, such as Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We all know that when we die, we can't take any of our earthly wealth with us. What will our spiritual condition reveal when we stand before God at our judgment? Will we be rich in Christ because we loved him or spiritually bankrupt because we loved ourselves and this world? When we die, the only thing that will matter is what we did with Jesus. Did we use our earthly wealth to advance his kingdom or our personal kingdom? It's a fact of life that's also true in the spiritual realm. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What we love is what we serve and seek after. It's what will define our thoughts and the things we want most in life. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is an either-or reality. Either we love Jesus supremely, or we will love money and what it can give us. For one, money is the means to gain power, to another, prestige or fame, and to another, the gaining of sensual desires. No matter in which way money is used for evil purposes, it will never give what it claims to offer. It will never meet the deepest needs of the human soul, for only Jesus can do that. Then in Luke chapter 18, verses 24 and 25, we are told that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The rich have a terrible time getting to heaven because wealth is an idol that few are willing to destroy. This is just a little of what Jesus taught on the subject, and Peter is only pulling from what he was taught from the Savior. Simon's former life of sorcery was consumed with greed. When he bought mystery knowledge, it was for the purpose of making more money. Now he was wanting to buy God's power for the same greedy prideful reasons. Peter knew Christ's teaching on money and greed, and this is what defined his belief on the subject. Other New Testament authors would expound on what Jesus taught about the love of money and the dangers of being rich. It's a fact that the love of money produces all kinds of evil, as Paul eventually taught. And if Simon didn't repent of this consuming sin, then he would perish along with all of his wealth. Simon's sin was not just greed, but he thought that he could buy the gift of God with money. From his former demonic occupation of being a sorcerer, he believed that spiritual power could be bought, and by gaining more mystery knowledge, he would grow in power, prestige, and wealth. His distorted belief was probably influenced by pagan religions, where people endeavor to purchase from a deity his or her favor or blessing. 
Simon was only doing what pagans of that day and time did all over the world. Of course, he took this further than the average pagan since he was a sorcerer, but this wasn't an obscure act. Peter needed to be clear on this matter and not allow there to be any mingling of pagan practices with the church, and only a strong rebuke would be able to turn this man from his sin. Peter needed to confront the pride and greed that was underlying Simon's motives. We are having in our time the vile influx of greed and paganism into the church, with some even going so far as to use occult practices such as Ouija boards. Greed and pride are nothing new. They've tragically become acceptable in many parts of the church. This has happened because there wasn't a Peter kind of figure to stand up and rebuke these greedy preachers who are creating a greedy religion, or these greedy preachers refused to listen to those who did rebuke them. This leads us into the next part of what Peter said to Simon. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. There are two points to this statement. The first is that Simon didn't have a part of that ministry, and second, that he wasn't right with God. Simon asked Peter if he could buy this spiritual gift, and it appears that he did this in a public setting. So this demanded a public rebuke. People need to know that God can't be bought, not as salvation, blessings, or power, even though the church tries to do this all the time in various ways. No one can buy his favor or bribe him to do what they want him to do. Greedy, deceptive, man-made prophets may sell their lying prophecies and according to how much you pay will be how big the personal prophecy will be. This is called simony, which is named after Simon. This is the practice where people claim that you can buy something from God, his blessings or prosperity, or where people use God to get rich. Because people try to sell God doesn't mean that he's for sale. He's never been for sale, and he will never be for sale. The Catholic Church is immersed in the evil practice of simony through the selling of indulgences and the hiring of priests and nuns to pray for the dead. They have many other such practices, all of which come right out of hell. Everyone who tries to buy or sell God's favor, blessings, or power is grossly deceived and is on a slippery path to hell. The root problem Simon had is that he wasn't right with God, just like every person or denomination that's taken up with the sins of simony. The effort to buy and sell God is evidence that people aren't right with God and aren't speaking for him. God was being good to Simon to give him another chance to repent. The Holy Spirit was exposing what was inside of the man, and this was a very loving thing to do. If Simon never asked Peter to buy that gift, the heart issue would have still been inside of him and could have taken him to hell. The manifestation of that sin gave the man an opportunity to get right with God. God is more interested in who we are than in what we do. Who we are will always come out of us, but people can for a time hide behind the mask of religion and good works, and this is sheer hypocrisy. If our heart is right with God, then our actions will follow. It may take a little bit of time for this to happen, but people in the honest pursuit of God will align their life with His will, while those whose heart isn't right with Him are seeking to live out their own will. Peter went on to proclaim in verses 22 and 23, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. 
The Lord never commands us to do something that he will not give us the grace to obey. That Peter commanded Simon through the anointing of the Holy Spirit to repent means that the Lord was offering Simon the gift of repentance. Along with the gift of repentance is the grace needed to change. Repenting is not merely saying I'm sorry, but it's acknowledging our sin and then turning from it. To turn from sin, we must turn to God who gives the needed grace. This is a simultaneous act. When we turn to God, we are turning from sin. If we haven't turned from sin, it's because we haven't authentically turned to God. Before we can repent, we must acknowledge that we have sinned and that our sin is exceedingly evil. Until we see the reality of our sin, there will be no motivation to repent and turn from our sin. If we only make mistakes, then we aren't guilty before God as wretched sinners. And then an I'm sorry is all that's really needed. But if we see sin as exceedingly wicked, that it's an evil so great that it nailed Jesus to the cross, then the only right response is wholehearted repentance. I really despise how sin is spoken of as a mistake because it's never a mistake. To say that we only make mistakes degrades the cross and the price Jesus paid for our redemption. Sin is never a mistake. It's always a deliberate act of evil, a willful act of rebellion against God. Peter told Simon to repent of his wickedness, and to do this, he must pray to the Lord who forgives repentant sinners. The next point Peter made is disturbing if we fail to understand it in light of verse 23. He said, perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. What Peter said has absolutely nothing to do with the doctrine of election and predestination, for if it did, then Peter would have never told him to repent in the first place. This is why we need to understand God's self-disclosure. He has shown himself throughout Scripture to be a God who forgives repentant sinners. He doesn't have to forgive people as if he was controlled by mankind or obligated to. It's his nature to forgive repentant sinners, and because this is how he reveals himself to us, then we can believe the promises of God in this matter. The issue isn't whether or not we feel forgiven, but if we will by faith believe the promises above our own twisted emotions and thoughts. Peter told Simon to repent of the evil thoughts that were in his heart, where he thought that he could buy the gift of God. He hadn't acted upon those wicked thoughts other than to speak them but the thoughts were themselves sin that needed to be repented of. Peter was teaching Simon, and now us, that what's in our heart can be as evil as the act itself, and this is some of Christ's teaching. Jesus said that if we lust after a person, it's as if we committed adultery, and if we have bitterness or hate in our heart, it's as if we committed murder. Before sin is ever acted out, it first begins festering in the heart. Some sins may seem like they're a spontaneous act, but the desire to sin was already brewing in the heart before it was acted out. Simon already allowed this evil into his heart, and if he didn't repent of it, then the sin would eventually have some kind of outward expression. The practice of sin is evidence that people don't know God. If you question what I just said, then let me defend this thought with two verses, yet there are many more besides. Both verses are found in 1 John, beginning with chapter 2, verse 4. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The second one is chapter 3, verse 6. 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. We can't practice sin and be a bona fide follower of Jesus. If Simon wanted God's salvation, then he must approach God in an acceptable manner, which is with a clean heart and clean hands, where he doesn't lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. The perhaps that Peter spoke is made clear in verse 23, where he said, For I see that you are full of bitterness and a captive to sin. Peter said, I see or perceive, which means God gave him a word of knowledge about Simon's spiritual condition. The apostle wasn't giving his opinion on the matter, but was speaking through the wisdom of God. The word gall here refers to bile that's secreted from the liver, and by analogy it speaks of the bitterness of sin and the wicked passions that produce sin. To understand what is meant by the gall of bitterness, as the King James Version translated it, we must move beyond what we would commonly think as 21st century Americans that would think Peter was talking about being extremely bitter at people. Actually, the gall of bitterness refers to idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 18 states, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. A similar thought is found in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 19. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Then we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The bitter root in these two verses could be applied to unforgiveness or hate, but more than likely it refers to idolatry. Though people could speak of the gall of bitterness as a reference to unforgiveness, it just doesn't fit the circumstances of the account. Nowhere does it say that Simon was angry or bitter. The sin of idolatry does keep with the idea of sorcery, which was the wicked occupation that Simon came out of and was closely associated with idolatry. There's also the idolatry of self that we see in Simon's request. At one time, people thought Simon was someone great, and he proclaimed himself as such. Pride, which always comes out of a lie, defines Simon in his life of sin, and this is an expression of self-idolatry. The final point Peter made is that Simon was a captive to sin, or in the bond of inequity, as the King James Version translated it. The word picture is of a prisoner that's chained to a Roman guard. The criminal's right hand is chained to the soldier's left. This is the idea of being totally chained to sin. When we think of the addictiveness to sin, we often think of drug and alcohol addictions. But all sin is addictive. The gossiper is addicted to her gossip, the hater to his hate and prejudice, the abuser to his anger and abuse, the pervert to his perversion, the greedy to his money, and so on. Simon was enslaved to the sins that were associated with his former life of sorcery, which it really does seem like he was trying to get free from. We can see from this that the world still had a pull upon the man, and hell wasn't wanting to let him go after using him for so many years to advance the agenda of devils. 
That this battle was raging for the soul of Simon doesn't mean that he wasn't genuinely saved or that he was in a backslidden condition. It just shows that he still had evil in his heart that needed to be exposed and repented of. This is serious, and the Lord was showing great compassion to this man because it's not his will that any perish, but that all gain eternal life. In verse 24, we see Simon's response. Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. It seems like Simon can't get a good word from a vast number of preachers and commentators. Yet we see in this statement what appears to be a genuine concern for his soul. Was there selfishness in this request? Probably, at least to a certain degree, since he was a new believer. He didn't want to suffer divine judgment as Peter proclaimed against him, and I can't blame him for that. It's easy to point out Simon's sins and faults, but we all have expressions of them in ourselves. I pointed this out earlier in relation to Peter and James and John. Simon's request seems sincere and filled with the fear of God. This fear might be rooted in some of his former pagan beliefs, but it takes time to cleanse our mind of the old filth and replace it with God and his word. Simon was a new believer, maybe only weeks or a couple of months old in Christ, so he needed some serious discipleship. Simon could have prayed for the Lord to forgive him, but given the situation, I can understand his quickly blurting out this request to Peter. We don't know what the end result of Simon was, and what's written about him in later works are more than likely bogus. The final verse of this story is 25. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. We aren't told how long Peter and John helped Philip, since that's not important information to them. They were in Samaria until their work was done. They helped stabilize the church that was exploding through revival and saw many enter into the Pentecostal experience. Once their work was done in Samaria, they left to return to Jerusalem, and on their way they preached in many Samaritan villages. Jesus strove to expel the prejudice his disciples had for Samaritans, but we see here that revival in Samaria helped Peter and John overcome this sin. I imagine that when they saw what the Lord was doing in Samaria, the move of the Spirit broke down some more of their cultural barriers and prejudices. After Peter and John left, the story with Philip takes a strange and unexpected turn. In verse 26, we are told, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. The angelic visitation probably happened in Samaria, but we aren't told when it happened or any of the exacts about it, since that's not important to the story. Philip's obedience is a wonderful expression of great faith and love for God. He was in the throes of revival, and naturally speaking, this seemed to be the best place for him to be. But the Lord wanted him to leave the revival to take a walk through some mountains and deserts, and it didn't make much sense. But we are called to obey, and that's what's important. If our obedience isn't quick, then we'll probably talk ourselves out of obeying the Lord. When he speaks, we should be quick to obey, for delay will only breed unbelief. But quick obedience produces great faith, and we see this in the life of Abraham, who quickly obeyed God, even to the offering of Isaac, his son of promise. Jesus was in the throes of revival outside of Capernaum, and he left at its height to go across the Sea of Galilee to rescue one demon-possessed man, and then went back when he was done. 
Verse 27 presents Philip's obedience. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. There's a lot of debate over Queen Candace because there's no record of her. Yet it was common for daughters to be left out of genealogies, and this might be the case here. The eunuch was a very important man who was Jewish in faith and went to Jerusalem to worship, possibly at the Feast of Pentecost. There are some interesting stories surrounding how the Jewish faith came to the Abyssinians from whom this man belonged, and it goes all the way back to King Solomon. I'm not going to take the time to go through those stories. What we learn from this account is that God is a God of perfect timing. If Philip went too early or too late, he would have missed the divine appointment the Lord wanted him to keep. We are in need of greater obedience so that we might see the Lord do greater things in and through us. As we will see with Philip, the first command moves him in the direction he was to go, and this is followed by another command that revealed the purpose of the first one. If our obedience breaks down, then we can forfeit what the Lord wants to do through us. Our obedience must be quick and precise according to what the Lord has spoken. God told Philip to go, and it says that he started out. That's faith in action, and this is the kind of faith God is calling us to live out. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Thirst no more, so come wash in the river, come drink your fill, let healing waters bear away your gift.